if you all have a Bible and you want to turn, we're going to head back into Mark. You guys might be thinking to yourselves, how long is this going to take? We haven't even got out of chapter one and we're on, this is a sixth sermon. It, it, it'll move quicker, but there's just a lot in here right now. But we're cut, we are covering more verses. So we're in Mark chapter one, and we're going to read beginning in verse 29. We left off at verse 28 last time. We're going to read through verse 39. And it says, And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. And at even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick of divers' diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, all men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and cast out devils. Now let's pray. And Father, I just ask you, Lord, that uh, through our preaching tonight, through reading the word, through reading these gospels, that the power, authority, and the life of our Lord Jesus Christ would be magnified in our hearts and in our minds. And just ask you that you'll... Show us what we need to see and encourage whoever needs to be encouraged and just speak to all of us here tonight. And I just ask you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. So, you know, Mark's gospel, it really does move like really quick. And so what we've seen looking through this gospel so far is the stage is set almost immediately for the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ through the ministry of John the Baptist. And then all of a sudden, Jesus just appears on the scene to be baptized by John. We see the heavens opened torn open, what a sight, the spirit descending like a dove, and the Father's voice speaks from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Mark just gives a brief mention compared to the other gospels of Jesus' testing in the wilderness. And he comes out of that and Mark shows that after that the king is about to establish his kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it begins first with the proclamation of the gospel. And next we go, he goes right into calling the first disciples, Peter and Andrew, who were brothers, and James and John, who were brothers. And from there on out, we said, Jesus never walked alone. Always had somebody with him, because we'll see in a little while here, not today, but in a few messages, that he's training them. He's training these men. And last week, we saw that Jesus in the synagogue begins to demonstrate his power and authority that he's been given as God's appointed king, the one who has come to destroy the works of the devil. And we said that is the purpose for Jesus coming to this earth. He came to engage and to destroy the kingdom of darkness. And so what happens when he's in that synagogue? That unclean spirit. Mark likes to use that term a lot through his gospel. That unclean spirit in that man cries out, and he's saying, what business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. And like we said, the demon's theology was very good. 
<laughs> he knows Jesus came to destroy the devil's work on earth and to establish the kingdom of God where healing, peace, joy, and righteousness will reign. So his theology is good, we said, but his timing is bad. Because when is that kingdom? The devil and the people thought it was going to happen right then when the king came. That's how they were reading the Old Testament. And when is that going to be fully manifested? So you look around now, and you can see the devil is alive and well, right? <laughs> it's hardly arrived. Because it's going to happen when? We still have a tribulation to go through. It's going to be Revelations 20 and 21 before the kingdom of God is fully established on this earth, in the new heavens and the earth, new earth. But before that time comes, we said the Lord Jesus Christ can reign in the hearts of his people, in your hearts, in my heart. And we can experience some of the benefits of that future kingdom now. Healing, deliverance, joy, and peace. Now, there's some things that we have to wait for, right? I mean, we're not going to get glorified bodies now. We have to wait for glorified bodies, freedom from suffering and persecution. We're promised that. We're not going to get delivered from that yet. Seeing Jesus face to face, literally, we have to wait for that. Read Revelation 21 and 22. That's going to happen and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of things we said we don't have to wait. That's what a lot of other places teach, but we know from the Bible that we don't have to wait on certain things to experience the kingdom of God. Jesus said this, if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, he says, no doubt. The kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. It was here back then. It still is here in that sense. Come for us to experience. We don't have to wait. Just sit back and wait. Because those that do, that just sit back and say, hey, when's this going to happen? I don't, it's not happening for me, right? They're never going to experience that kingdom. It has to be fought for. It has to be contended for. Because Jesus also said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent Take it by force. And we saw some of that last week in that confrontation between Jesus and that unclean spirit. So Jesus is preaching, and the anointing that is on him, the authority that he's preaching with, causes this devil to speak out of this man. He can't stay quiet anymore. Brings that out of him. It manifests. Let us alone. The Spirit of God's tormenting that spirit, that demon, right? Are you coming to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebukes that spirit, doesn't he? Tells him, really, he tells him, shut up. And that's not, we don't like to say that, so we'll say, tells him to be quiet and come out of that man. And he does, right? But does he just meekly obey this unclean spirit? No, it says he convulses the man. And then it says he comes out crying out with a loud voice. Ah, coming out of that guy as he came out of And the people sitting there, like if that happened here, like all of you would be, they are sitting there, the Bible says, Mark says, they are amazed at what they're seeing happen. They're already amazed at the teaching. They, we never heard any teaching like this. And they're astonished, can't believe what they've seen. So first of all, this man comes in this synagogue and teaches with authority and power in his words like they'd never heard, unlike the scribes. You know, he's not dry and dead and unsure of himself. No, they're saying, we're hearing these words now. This is different hearing the word of God and hearing this man preach. There's life in these words that he's preaching. There's a certain power 
that's coming through. And in his presence, there's this command about him, is what they're saying. And not only that, not only the authority in his teaching, but also when he speaks to these unclean spirits, they obey his command. He tells them to shut up, and they do. Tells them to come out, and they do. And all they'd seen before, look, there was exorcist back at that time, but they'd go through all these incantations and all these rituals, and sometimes they might get results. Most of the time, they never did. But they're seeing Jesus speaking to this unclean spirit. They knew about that spirits existed and were tormenting people. People wanted to be set free. He takes five words to do what these guys would go on and on and on for days maybe and not get any results. Wow, they're like, we've never seen anything like that. And that's the beginning of a look at the day in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It begins in verse 21, which is where we were last week, and it ends in verse 39. That's a, a full day in the life of the Lord Jesus. So what we looked at last week is it begins in the morning in the synagogue. And I'll tell you, you think about it, I'm sure those people would have stayed there all day in that synagogue because they're like, we've never heard teaching like that. And I'll tell you, there's been times when I've heard an anointed teaching. I mean, two hours seems like 10 minutes. We, we've all experienced that, right? I'm sure they could have stayed there all day. They're like, the word's great. And not only that, we got entertainment. <laughs> Watching this demon get exercised, right? To boot. But typically those services would last till about noon. And that's what we have here. It lasted till about noon and they quit. So we have in verse 29, they're coming out of the synagogue. It's lunchtime. And forthwith, verse 29, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So the five of them, Jesus, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they all leave the synagogue and they go to Peter's house to eat lunch. Now, if you go to Israel today, if you've been there, they know where that synagogue is. They know exactly where it sits. And so they're not wondering about that. And they know that not far away, they are pretty certain, almost 100% certain that they know where Peter's house is at. What's been considered Peter's house for centuries. It doesn't really matter. But it's not that far away. It's about a stone's throw away. And that's kind of where we believe Jesus established his headquarters when he's ministering in Capernaum. And so they go into Peter's house, and there lies Peter's mother-in-law. Now, just a little parenthetical aside, I don't know what the Catholics do with that. Peter has a mother-in-law, the first pope. Because I'm saying the Greek word for mother-in-law, we're not wondering, does that maybe mean mother-in-law? or No, it is, that's all it can mean, is mother-in-law. And he had a mother-in-law, no doubt about it. And we also have Paul wrote, so if you ever meet a Catholic that wants to tell you, hey, you know, this is why the priests don't marry, you tell them, look, the first pope had a wife. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, he says, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas or Peter. So it's Peter and the other apostles. I think they're probably, you got the Pope and the Cardinals, if you want to put it that way. They got wives, but we got our little lowly priest in the world through the Catholic Church can't get married. And so you got all these other issues as a result of that. And so Peter's taking his wife on missionary journeys. That's the way it is. And the church was supporting him. That's what it means when it said he led about. He didn't lead her about like a dog on a leash, you know, with a ring in her nose. No, he led her. It means he took her with him. She came along. That's what happened. But he comes in there, comes into that house, Jesus does, and his wife's mother is very sick. 
so sick she's laying down with a fever. And the word for fever means burning heat. So as we would say, you know, when you got your children and you come home from work and your wife says, well, so-and-so, you know, she's got a temperature or whatever, and you lay your hand, it's like, oh, they are burning up. That's what this is. She is burning up. It's a serious thing. Luke, in his account, and we know Luke was a physician, says that she was suffering from a great fever or a high fever. I mean, she's up there in the numbers, in the fever numbers. So that, back in that day, this is interesting, at that time they thought, they didn't think that fever was your fighting off an infection, no, they thought fever was a sickness in and of himself, in and of itself, and they thought it was divine chastisement that was only curable by God. That's how fevers were viewed back in that time. And Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 both speak of fever as being sent as chastisement or judgment by God for disobedience. Leviticus 26 says, if you will not hearken unto me, 26.16, if you will not hearken unto me and do all these commandments, I will even appoint over you terror, wasting disease, and fever that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. Basically says the same thing in Deuteronomy 28. And only God, it was believed, could cure a fever. And they were as, they are deadly then and they are deadly now. Can be, depending. So the rabbis back then would say this, Great is the miracle wrought for the sick. Greater is the miracle wrought for the sick, someone with a fever, than for the three Hebrew boys that had to face a burning fire. And he says, for their fire was kindled by man, which can be extinguished, while that of a sick person is a heavenly fire. And who can extinguish that? And the implied answer is the only one that could extinguish a fever, that burning heat, was God. That's what they believed. So here they come in. They knew Peter. He had to know his mother-in-law had not been feeling good, had that fever. And his, him and his friends, they just seen a demonstration of the authority and power of our Lord Jesus Christ over that spirit. His divine power. They know there is, he can take care of this situation. right? And so they ask him to help her. They ask him to do what they knew only God could do. And they asked the right person, I would say, wouldn't you? <laughs> and it, it's, the, it's the implication they're like praying. They besought him for her, it says. Not in Mark's account, but in the other accounts. And so what did he do? Look in verse 39 of Mark 1. No, not 39, 30. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and immediately they get in the house. They tell him of her. In verse 31, he came and took her by the hand, and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. So it says, he took her by the hand and lifted her up. She was flat on her back, not doing well at all. Luke says that he rebuked the fever. Just like he did, he rebuked that spirit in the synagogue. And just like he rebuked the winds and the waves. And like I've heard it said, fevers can't hear. It was the spirit behind that. But it says he rebuked the fever and a spirit left her. And Matthew says he touched her hand and the fever left her. So when you put all three accounts together, all three gospel accounts together, you have it that Jesus, he walks over to the mother-in-law laying there sick with this high fever. And he stands over her. He rebukes the fever. And after he does that, he takes her hand. And immediately as he does that, that spirit leaves her. 
and Jesus raises her up on her feet. Now, she wasn't going through any kind of a healing trial, was she? She didn't slowly get better because it says right here that immediately the fever left her. And so God's power came into her body in such a way that she is fully recovered. There's no, I'm just not quite feeling real good. No, no, fully recovered because the next thing, what does it tell us that she did? Fever left her in the end of verse 31, and she ministered unto them, able to serve Jesus and the four disciples that were with him. And the beauty of this is he's coming in. This is just a domestic house. No big show, right? And the story is told in just a simple way, isn't it? It really is. Not all the dramatics that you have back in the synagogue. <laughs> but it just as graphically demonstrates the authority and power of our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Took place in her house. She had an instant and full recovery. And so, you know, you'll run into people, and I've heard it here and there and everywhere, that if healing is an instant and full, then it's not God. Oh, well, we don't see that in the New Testament. Oh, Jesus always had instant healings. And I would say, not really. I don't think so. Everything wasn't instant. But what about, we're talking about someone recovering, laying on their back. What about Hezekiah? Back in 2 Kings 20. You read 2 Kings 20, it said he had a boil that was killing him. I'm sure painful-wise he'd say, man, this thing's killing me. But it was killing him, literally. He was going to die from it. Had a, must have been a nasty-looking boil. One time my dad had a boil on his stomach. That thing was like that big. That thing was nasty-looking. That thing finally started draining. I mean, I don't, wasn't about ready to kill my dad, but it killed me practically looking at that thing. But Hezekiah had this boil that was killing him, and Isaiah the prophet told him, take a lump of figs and put it on the boil. And they did that. Was it instant? And you got Isaiah the prophet saying, thus saith the Lord. Was it instant? It took three days for him to recover. So I would say God can heal in three seconds. He can heal in three days. He can heal in three weeks. And it may even be three years dependent, right? And this is what was said to Hezekiah. Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer. He had the answer. I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. And on the third day you shall go up into the house of the Lord. But what does that tell us? I'm sure many fathers in here have laid hands on sick children, their spouses, even themselves, with a high fever. I have many times. And I've seen recoveries that were quick, and I've seen recoveries that didn't go real quick. But the bottom line is, they did recover. <laughs> because God's faithful. He is. Now you look, we talked about Mark 16 last week, and it doesn't give us a timeline if you read Mark 16. It says at the end of it, <laughs> they shall lay hands on the sick, it says, and they shall recover. That's one of my favorite verses. When I've got it, when my wife says, you need to pray for such and such, that is, you ask my kids, that is the verse I quote. Because I, I think I can trust that. I can, that's so clear and easy, and, and I'm just simple-minded. It's easy to understand. Lay hands on the sick, and it says, they shall recover. And I pray for them, whether it's instant or not, I'm... You will recover, because God promises that. I've looked at the Greek in Mark 16, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, and the word instantly, I'm telling you, it's not there. 
It's just not there. Now, we should be expecting instantly, shouldn't we? Didn't Jake teach a, teach a message on that? You don't expect it next week. You expect God to manifest that power any time. That's what faith is. Faith is in the now, isn't it? But the thing is, no matter what, you know it's going to happen. Whether it's instant or not, that's what it is. In James 5.15, love to quote that. The prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. So I don't know, you know, it could be these manuscripts, a lot of them, they get buried in the sand all these years, and it could have been instantly was erased out of James 5 and Mark 16. I don't know. It's possible. But it's not there. <laughs> it just says the prayer of faith will heal the sick, and it says the Lord will raise him up. It doesn't tell you when. It just says if it's faith, God will do it in his time and in his way. If it's faith, the key is bringing Jesus into your house, isn't it? And asking him in faith, because that's what happened here. Brought him into the house. So his mother-in-law was restored. Peter's mother-in-law brought up to her feet by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and what she restored to do. What did it say there at the end of verse 31? She's restored to serve him and his followers. So what we need to see here is God doesn't give us health. He doesn't give us healing and health to just selfishly go around and do what we want to do, or, or especially not to enjoy sin, but to serve. Now, there are some women that might be offended that it says she's brought back to health, and then she had to serve lunch. Well, let me ask you, is that really demeaning? Is that demeaning? You know, maybe you think, well, she should have been leading a seminar or preaching to women about, you know, Whatever, how God manifests healing. Is that what she should have been doing rather than doing housework? You know, they, they wouldn't have let her come to the Democratic National Convention and share her story. Uh-uh. It just sounds demeaning. You did what? You got healed, and then you started doing lunch? Who does lunch this day and age? Well, listen, serving Jesus lunch is not a put-down, is it? <laughs> the same word for serve that is used there is used back in 113, Mark 113, when he's out in the desert and it says the angels came and ministered to him. It's the same word for served. Are we better than the angels in that sense? And it's the same word Jesus used to talk about in his own ministry in Mark 10. Later on, it says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Are we greater than him? So I'm saying it's not a put down, sisters. To be a housekeeper and to take to minister to the needs of your husband and others. And really, actually, the women, if you read the gospel, they seem to catch on to the fact that we are saved to serve quicker than the men did. They really did. And you read at the end of Mark, in Mark 15, it says this. So they're coming to when Jesus is crucified and looking on, and it says there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, it says they used to follow him and serve him, minister to him. Is that a put down? I don't think so. But it's just not women. It's the goal ultimately all of our goals that when we're restored, we serve God. We serve him. And that's what we have our glorified bodies. That's going to be more than just being restored. That is beyond being restored. But we're given those glorified bodies and we're in heaven. You know what? That's what we're going to be doing, serving God. Because that's what it says in Revelation 22, 3. 
There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him. Revelation 22, 3. We'll be joyfully serving the king like Peter's mother-in-law was here for all eternity in heaven. That's what we'll be do doing. And I think service is a characteristic of the kingdom of God. Serving others. Being a servant. But then we go on in Mark's account here and we see a further demonstration of Jesus' power and compassion that evening. Look in verses 32 through 34, and, and at evening, when the evening come and the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of divers' diseases and cast out many devils and allowed not the devils to speak because they knew him. So we have, it says the whole city, now Peter probably had a fairly large house. It just says the whole city is gathered at the door of Peter's house. And so these crowds are coming. They want to see who this new teacher, this new miracle worker that has this amazing power. Word had gotten out about him over demons and disease, and they're bringing people. So there's probably people that had trouble walking, you know, just need some assistance. They're probably carrying people, helping people, leading people. It's family members and friends. They're bringing their sick people to the Lord Jesus Christ because they need help. So how many diseases did Jesus specialize in? You know, you got doctors today that they just specialize only in certain types of illnesses, and outside of their specialty, you know, it may be they're worthless. I don't know. I don't know how that works. But you know, they got specialties. But it says when they came to Jesus that they brought many sick of divers' diseases. Do we use that word divers? But what it means is various, many different kinds of diseases are brought to Jesus to be healed. In other words, when it's saying that, what it's just telling us, and he healed, he healed everyone. So we're saying by that that God can heal anything. Nothing is incurable. Nothing is beyond God's specialty, right? He can heal every disease possible. Every disease is possible for God, and he has the power to cure it. And that's not true today, is it? With medical science, it's not, but it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't see, he didn't turn anyone away because they didn't have insurance. No, didn't turn anybody away. No illness he couldn't or wouldn't cure. And no demonic oppression, because there's different types of that, no demonic oppression that he couldn't or wouldn't deliver someone from. Everybody that came to the Lord Jesus Christ got help. Isn't that what we read? Y'all are looking at me. They all got help. They did. And what is that showing us? That's showing us it's not in us. It's in him, isn't it? He's the one we're trying to glorify by reading this gospel account. But what we're seeing there is he has authority and power over everything that comes in our lives that is not right, that is not the way God wants it to be. Because we've been taught well here in this church that all disease comes from where? The devil. We know that says he healed all that were oppressed from the devil. And anything that he corrupts, Jesus can make right. That's what we're seeing here. So when it talks about they brought unto him, that verb, it describes they're bringing a continuous stream of people to him to be healed. They didn't just bring them all at once. It's just 
through the night and probably one's getting healed or leaving and the report's getting out about that. It's just the continuous stream of people coming to be healed. It doesn't turn any of them away. The whole town is gathered there, it says, at that door to watch and maybe to wait their turn to get in front of him for him to pray for him. But the whole town's there. They're at the door. And let me ask you, was the door to that house Jesus was in, was it open or shut? It's open. It's still open. His power and compassion is still open to us. Do we believe that? It still is. In Matthew's account of that same evening, he says this. He says, Jesus cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. That's Isaiah 53. And as we've heard before, what does that tell us? That tells us that healing is where? It's right in the atonement. It comes from the cross. It's like we talked about John 3. Just a look. Look at the cross, the serpent on the pole. Only a look can bring that healing. And can bring forgiveness. So the same atonement, nobody has, nobody's struggling for the most part believing they're forgiven in Christian churches. They preach on that. Everybody, amens, gets all excited, throws their Bible in the air. No one's struggling with that. But the same cross, the same atonement provides forgiveness and healing. It does. Psalm 103, 1 to 3, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. And I would say what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. God put it together. It, it doesn't matter what I think. It's what God's word says. Go read Matthew 8, 16 and 17. So it may not be for us, but forgiveness and healing are just as easy for God. And I'll say what needs to happen, we, we need to watch that we are not getting skeptical of the Bible. You know, let's not say, well, I know it's there. I, I can see it's there. Well, we can all see it's there. And we can even believe it's true, but it doesn't just seem to be a reality for today. <laughs> We've got to watch that. I'm telling you, it's true. What we're saying, what the preaching that we've heard, the power of Jesus Christ is still available. It is. And so I'd say, look, all of us have missed it in here. Does anybody want to raise their hand and say, anytime they've trusted God, they have never missed it? Is anyone going to testify to that? All of us have missed it. So we're not talking up here about condemning anybody. I mean, we ought to all be past that, right? But just because we missed it, and not been able to trust God fully for healing, for whatever the reason, there's a lot of different reasons for that, right? It's no reason to lower God's word or his standard or to become skeptical of whether this works or not. We have not been misled. As far as I'm concerned, we've not been misled. And I'd say, hey, let's seek God for why things didn't work out like you would have liked him. And let's get back to trusting God fully. And let me say, not because it's the quote-unquote faith message, but because it's what the Bible teaches. <laughs> I'm not tied to a message, but I am tied to the Bible. And I'm sorry, I can't get anything else out of that. <laughs> what we've been taught all these years. And I think the next verses kind of maybe give us a hint where the problem lies. Look down in verse 35. 
maybe this is part of the problem. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he, Jesus, went out and departed into a solitary place, it says, and there prayed. And Jesus praying in a secluded spot tells us a lot. As you think about it, he had just had an exhausting day of preaching and ministering to the sick. And I'm telling you, that wears you out. Anybody that's preached can tell you, it, I just talked to somebody, a, a, a person that ministered for 10 years the other day. It's just the way it is. It's just hard to explain. You stand up here and do it and you'll understand. It, it just, it's exhausting in a way that you just have to do it. You think, well, man, you just stand up there and talk, tell a joke every now. How could that be any big deal? I'm telling you, it, it wears you out. It does, a, it does a number on you, right? Well, he not only did that, but he's ministering to these sick people one after another, power going out of him. I guarantee you that was exhausting for him. Yet, he rises up early in the morning. Now, that convicts me because a lot of times I had a rough whatever. I'm just like, I think I'm going to sleep in a little bit. I deserve it. Oh, well, he didn't do that, did he? He's getting up way before it says the dawn. It's dark, it's letting you know. That's way before the sun's getting ready to come. Rises early in the morning, and he gets out of Capernaum. He wants to get away from people. He's got a place that he goes and communes with God. And so we have to think about this and not just read these accounts. Well, that's Jesus. <laughs> Look, Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully man. And so being fully God, we tend to think, oh, well, he's God. Well, look, being God didn't mean he could act independently of the Father. And this shows us right here that he didn't. This demonstrates to us he was fully dependent on the Father. We know through John's gospel, he needed, he says, I only do what he shows me. So he needed direction. But that's where he also got his anointing, his authority, and his spiritual power and strength. And so you think about it. Do we not need all those things? I do. I do big time. And if Jesus couldn't do Fully God, fully man, he couldn't do the things he did without spending hours in prayer with the Father. How do we think we're going to do any better than that? That is crazy. To think we're going to get by in our prayer life be abysmal or non-existent. And we're going to try to trust the Lord? Mm -mm. That's not going to work. He's our example, he's our pattern, and faith to trust God doesn't just come by reading the Bible because there are countless Christians that read their Bible every day, but they have no faith to, no faith to trust the Lord, I would say, for almost anything. So don't hear me wrong. Reading the Word is crucial, but so is quality prayer time. And I'm talking about for faith. Because what does Jude say, Jude 20? But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. You want to increase your faith, build up your faith? He says, praying in the Holy Spirit. And through that, he goes on to say, you'll keep yourselves in the love of God. That's another critical thing to faith, knowing that God loves you and cares about you. So when the disciples didn't have the faith to cast the demon out of the boy, you know what Jesus didn't tell them? He's like, boys, you should have been at my Bible study last night. You need to get some Bible studies going. Now, he didn't tell them that. That wasn't their problem. What did he say to them? He's saying, this is a hard case right here. And we've got hard cases that we've had to deal with. He said, this hard case right here, my friends, it's not just a matter of knowing the word or even the authority that they'd been given. He said, but this kind cometh not out. 
It can't come out any other way by what? And fasting. Prayer and fasting. It says it comes forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. That means there's no other way. And when Jehoshaphat and Israel talked about that quite a bit, when they were faced with an impossible situation, they were helpless against the army that was coming against them. How did their faith come? And they had to have faith for God to deliver them. How did their faith come? Well, you read the beginning of that account in 2 Chronicles 20, and it says they proclaimed a fast, and they sought the Lord, got themselves in a spiritual position that when that man spoke and prophesied what God would do, they could receive it, and they could get results, because that's how their results came. God only gives results to faith, and they had faith. That's how it worked. So I think prayer is crucial, but it's costly. Fasting and prayer, it takes time, and it's a lot of discomfort and pain if you do that. But I think that's part of what we talked about at the beginning. That's part of taking the kingdom by violence, by force. That's part of what's involved. So we move on here to verse 36. And it we talks here about Peter and the other disciples. They go on a manhunt for Jesus. Look what it says in verse 36. It says, And Simon and they were, that were with him followed after him. And followed after him doesn't really give the sense of what that verb there is talking about. Because that verb really means like you're hunting something, like you're going hunting after a deer, or you're, you're out to track somebody down. That's what they were doing. They are tracking him down. They're hunting Jesus down until they find him. And then in verse 37, and when they do find him and when they had found him, they said unto him, all men seek for thee. And they're not doing that just because they think, man, we thought you'd just like to know, Jesus. You know, people are looking and are wondering where you're at. That's not what they're saying. They're saying it like, what are you doing out here all by yourself? You know, the crowds are looking for you, man. You are popular. That's what they're saying. What a ministry we've got going back there in Capernaum. We can set up shop there and we can have it made. That's what they're saying to him. What are you doing out here? Because that word follow after him is used 10 times in Mark and it's never used. Seeking after him, following after him, trying to hunt something down, never used in a good sense. And here it has the thing. They're trying to control the thing sought, Jesus. They're trying to control him. That's what the, the word is given the implication. And so here's the thing. Was Jesus persuaded by popularity? Because, you know, we know well by reading our Bibles that he knew better than to equate the fact that you had clamoring crowds, all this publicity, enthusiasm was success. He knew that wasn't really a sign of true faith that they want him, right? Because in John, after feeding the 5,000, and it says he walks on water, gets out to the boat, and then he gets into the boat, and they go to the other side on the Sea of Galilee. And the next day, they're wanting to find him so bad because he fed them that bread. It talks about they're squeezing him into all these boats, and these boats, they're on another manhunt seeking after Jesus. All these people, all these boats coming after him. And when they finally found him, this is what he told them in John 6. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, you seek me, you want me so bad, you'll do whatever you have to to find me, and they did. He goes, you seek me, but not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. And so Jesus knew all, he knew the hearts of these people, that all they wanted 
was relief from their hunger because most people back then to get bread that I'm sure that was the best bread they ever ate. Yeah, Heikman's Bakery or whatever the name of that place is. Oh, it was great. They wanted more of that because there's a lot of them didn't get to eat every day that good. So they just wanted to get relief from hunger. In the case of the crowds at Capernaum, they just want to get relief from pain and affliction. And that didn't move Jesus. He tells his disciples, I'm sorry, we're not staying here. We're moving on. Because being popular, being on TV, having a house in Jerusalem and one in Rome, that's, that's not what I'm after. Living on some widow's income, that's not why I came. That's what he tells them. Verse 38 tells us why he did come. And he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. That's what he came to do, to preach the kingdom of God is at hand and that people need to repent. They need to get right with God. That was his purpose for coming. He says, I came to preach about righteousness. Isn't that what we have on the Sermon on the Mount? And he says at the beginning of that, unless your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, even if you're healed. I'm saying healing, partaking of healing, yeah, it's a blessing to the people that get it, but that's not the main thing, is it? Nothing wrong with that. As one man said, miracles are of news value and good news to those who are healed. It's good news, man. If you got pain or you got a sick child or you got whatever, that is the best news you could have, right? Nothing wrong with that. He says, but miracles and healings are not the sum total of the good news. And some people, they want to make that everything. He says, because the good news also includes holiness, suffering, and persecution. So Jesus is telling him here, hey, this is my purpose. I came from the Father to preach. And preaching is important. He says, I'm going to go from town to town preaching. I'll perform miracles to confirm the word and to destroy the works of the enemy and to bless people. I'm going to do that. But the message is repentance, holiness, and trust in God. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Now, here's the thing I want to say about that. He said, I came to preach. That's why the Father sent me. And preaching today is losing its primary place in churches, in most churches. It's being replaced by a lot of religious activity. That's what I'm seeing is going on. And so we need to give heed. Paul wrote, you know, like I've talked about before, when a man's dying, the last thing he says is very important to listen to. And one of the last things Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, is his last epistle. Wrote it shortly before he died. And chapter 4 is the end of that epistle. And he writes this in 2 Timothy 4. We've heard this before, but listen to what he's saying. It just struck me today. He says, I charge thee, writing to Timothy, therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. He tells Timothy this, preach the word. Be instant, in season and out of season. And here's the kind of word that he tells him to preach. Not what we're hearing today. Reprove, he tells him. Rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And he says, for the time will come, and it's here, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth. Don't want to hear it anymore. I'm bored with the truth. 
It doesn't have that newness it used to have. There's no novelty to it anymore. I've tried it and it doesn't work. And he says, they will turn their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And that's what we're getting a lot of. And that's the spirit, I believe, that is coming over the world. And Christian, it doesn't stop at the door of the church. People are wanting to hear, this is what's popular now, I'm telling you. I got inside information on this. They're wanting to hear a message of grace and community. It takes a village type preaching. And hey, I got nothing wrong with fellowship and community. I'm not saying that. Hear what I'm saying. But they're turning their ears from the truth. No one wants to hear a message anymore that reproves and rebukes, that speaks of sin, the fear of God, repentance, and the judgment to come. Not popular messages. Take my word for that. But look, we talked about Jesus says he came to preach righteousness. Read the Sermon on the Mount. You know, there's not a whole lot of love in that in terms of what people are calling love today because you read the Sermon on the Mount, it is very demanding. I mean, in fact, it's impossible to live the Sermon on the Mount outside of experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Impossible. And that's why a lot of people say, oh, no, that's for another age. That's for the millennium. No, it's for now. Yeah, Jesus says what at the end of that in chapter 7? He says the wise man. The wise man will hear what is said there no matter how demanding it is. And he will listen and hear and obey. And that's the person that in these last times, whoever that is, that will still be standing when everything that's coming starts coming. That's the person. That's us, hopefully, all of us in here. So that'll be the person who stands out like a bright light in this dark world. A man like we talked about not too long ago, like Noah. Just and perfect and walked with God. That's, that's a Christian living the Sermon on the Mount. That's going to be a person like Job. God tells Satan, what does he say? He says, look at Job down there in this world. He says, there is none. You look at all these people, and it said the devil been going to and fro, and the whole earth been checking everybody out. He says, look, I know who all you've looked at, but you look at Job down there. There is none like him in all the earth. And that's what he has to be able to say about us. Those people down there, there's none like them in all the earth. That's what we should be as a church, amen? I mean, we really should. Men and women, like Paul wrote to in Philippians, blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And I'm saying is, Jesus went and he said, I came to preach. I'm saying, that's the kind of preaching we want to hear. You should be praying for that God gives you however you're going to get it, whoever stands in this pulpit, the kind of preaching that's going to produce that kind of fruit in your life that calls you to be holy and blameless without rebuke, a light shining in this dark world. Trust in God. That's what we need to pray for. That's the kind of preaching I want to hear. Not for myself. I'm saying, well, that's what I want to hear. It's been like that since day one in my life. I wasn't attracted because it's the quote-unquote faith message and now I can get all these things. I didn't care about any of that. I'm like hearing, here's somebody that's saying the Bible means what it says it means. And actually believing that and putting it into practice. And I'm like, that's what I want to hear. <laughs> and that's what we should want. So to sum it up, a day in the life of Jesus 
That's what we just went through, right? And what do we see about our Lord Jesus Christ, that his authority in preaching the word and over demonic powers, unparalleled, never been seen before, right? And then he's got a compassion. We, we need to build on a, a compassion to heal all kinds of diseases. Doesn't turn anybody away. That's what the Bible says. And his prayer life, we need to see his prayer life. That is where he got his direction, his power, his authority by spending time with the Father. We can't bypass that. We're not above our master, are we? We can't bypass that. And what's the primary thing that he came to do? He came to preach. Preaching. And so listen, with his Holy Spirit living inside of us, all of us here that have said we've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we can have the same authority, power, compassion, and effectiveness in our prayer life that our Lord did if we wanted. Isn't it? It's up to us. Because he'll bless us in all those things. God's not holding back. And it says that he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's all I got for tonight. Let's bow our heads. And Father, I just ask that as we look at our Lord Jesus Christ and how he lived, Lord, that you'll just show us that, that what he did we can do also through his spirit living in us. And I just ask that you'll help us to yield to him so that we can have that same authority, that same prayer life, that same power over demons and disease, that his power could be manifested through us in our lives and in the lives of our family, and that we can live righteous lives. Lord, I just ask you to cause us to do that, and we get our priorities straight, that we can be blameless and harmless in this wicked and perverse nation that we live in, and so that one day we can stand before you and look at you face to face, and you will say to us, well done, thy good and faithful servant. That is our prayer from this church tonight, and I pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.